0: Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
1: And those of you that came without a Bible, that's all right. We have Bibles for you in the And the seats, so you can certainly borrow a Bible, and we would like you to know that if you'd like to have one of our Bibles, even to add to your own collection, you're more than welcome. So you just take those Bibles and use them and pass them on to someone else. That is our joy to do that, and what a blessing it is. At the same time, this is not just a disconnect from the whole series we're talking about. Our series is called The DNA of a Healthy Church. Instead of just running into a bunch of verses on what a healthy church looks like, I decided to spend a little bit more time on what is called ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church, to really share with you how it all began. Because the beginning of the church, in some ways, and very simply, is the beginning of Christianity. And I know that many of you know the beginning of Christianity. Some of you, it's a little foggy, and some of you, you're just investigating it for the first time. How did it begin? Was it some religious leader that somehow got a raw deal and went to the cross, and some people believe he rose again from the dead, and it kind of started this whole thing, no, that's not exactly how it all began. And so we wanted you to know what it's saying in Scripture regarding the church. Now, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn instead of to Acts chapter 1 that was so beautifully read to us, which will be our primary passage hopefully today, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and then Ephesians chapter 4. So find Ephesians chapter 2. That's on page 151 if you have one of the Bibles that's there in the seat. If not, you can look on your own Bible, and it's Ephesians chapter 2, and then we will go to Ephesians chapter 4. I think all of you have watched enough television to sometimes when you see a television show or maybe even a movie begin, it starts out, and you're trying to figure out what happens, and then all of a sudden you see across the screen it says, two weeks earlier, and then they go back into the message again or the song or whatever they're doing to let you know what happened earlier. Well, that's what I'm going to do now. Now. Instead of talking about how the Spirit came down and what happened there, we will be talking about that, what the Bible teaches on the infilling of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, was it tongues and all of that that began when the church began. We're going to cover all of that, and you can relax. I will not do it next week while most of you are at camp. I was tempted to do that because I'd have a lot less controversy because you won't be here, but I'm going to save that for a couple of weeks down the road. However, what is important is that we know that the church was built upon Jesus Christ and the apostles, and that's why I'm spending a little bit more time so that you know that even before the church was begun, the Lord in His infinite wisdom and in the strategy of the ages, He was preparing those who would be the church planters or the leaders for the church. This way, you will know that this wasn't just thrown together by some guy who couldn't make it until religion started. It wasn't like that at all. It was carefully thought out. In my belief, it was planned. Before man was even created in the wisdom and the mind of God. Now, how does that link to what we heard from our beautiful singers today? You heard probably a little bit, but they really would love to tell you how that when they said God was with them all the way, God was prompting the hearts of people, not just from our church, but from churches, other places, and from the church at large, supernaturally, to come together and to wrap their arms around a couple that was hurting. Now, I want you all to know that it is true. It's not because they're so special and they can sing and they're good-looking. It's because of the fact that God will do that for every single one of us, and he does it through the economy of his faith family in him being the head through the church. So let's look at it for just a moment in Ephesians chapter 2 to just kind of see a little bit of the basis of this. In chapter 2, I want you to see in verse 19, beginning there, And then we'll go to chapter 4. It says then, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So he's basically saying the Jews and the Gentiles, when they place their faith in Christ, they're not on the outside, they're on the inside, and a new entity is begun. They're citizens with the saints and are of God's household. It's not a mixed breed of Jews and Gentiles coming together and now they're joining the church. It's God creating an entire family, a brand new household, a new institution. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, every believer alive, past and future, being fitted together is growing into the holy temple in the Lord. Not a building, not a structure, not an organization. And then it says, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit, meaning that The Holy Spirit comes inside of us. We'll be teaching that a little bit later on at another Sunday. And that we all have the Spirit so we are all together with the Lord based on what God has done. Now there's a phrase in here that I want to clarify. You'll see the phrase that says foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now the phrase is the foundation of the apostles. Some of you reading scripture will find in other places where it says Jesus Christ is the foundation. This says Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation. So are the apostles the same as Christ? Are they the foundation? Technically, in the Greek right here, it is speaking that they are the foundation builders. That's why Paul himself said that we are wise master builders if we build on the right foundation and that foundation being Christ. So they're foundational, true, but they're not the foundation. The foundation is Christ, and he also is the chief cornerstone to make sure that foundation is solid and straight. And that's the foundation. So it began with Christ Then came the apostles and the prophets. Now, if you will go to chapter 4, and you'll see a little bit more how that opens up. Chapter 4, and if you'll follow along as I read to you verse 11 now. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Again, it says, And the Lord gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Let's pause for a moment. So you have the foundation being Christ, you have the chief cornerstone being Christ, but upon that he now builds with apostles in this little hierarchy, and after that will be the prophets after that, and then after that would be the evangelists, and then you have what would be known as the pastor-teachers. I do realize that in many cases there is no separation between laity and clergy, and I will argue with that because of the, you might call it, we're all part of God's family, we're all priests with the Lord, we all have equal access to God. Yet at the same time, there is a bit of a division there because God does say there are called-out people that are official that are placed in the body for purposes. And that would be Jesus Christ, the foundation, then the apostles, which we'll talk about in a moment, then the prophets, and then the evangelists, then pastor-teachers. Now with that, that's where we are today. God has given to the church at large and to local bodies people that are specifically called and qualified to be pastor-teachers. And so when you come here, while I will shepherd and I may preach a little bit, mostly what I'll do is I will take out God's word and help you to understand it so you can make a decision. So I'm a little bit more as a teacher than I'm a pulpit pounder and a Bible banger to you all. And some of you probably appreciate that. On the other side, you get a teacher, which means sometimes I can be a little bit more technical. Go back to the passage, if you will. Continue in verse 12 because this tells you the purpose for the apostles all the way down to us pastor teachers. It says, we are given to the church for the Equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, if that is not a mouthful, I don't know what is. So let me see if I can make it clear. Simply stated, we have been given to the church to help equip you so you could do the work so that we would be growing into the likeness and the character of Christ. All of us working together doing this and learning. Now, the apostles are the ones who launch this. Follow me again. If you recall, Jesus only mentioned the ter- church twice in the Gospels, but the church got launched then in the book of Acts. And so there's a transition between the Gospels and Acts. Now watch this now. There is a transitional writer. His name is Luke. Luke wrote Luke, of course, but he also wrote Acts underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the connector is Luke in his storytelling of a timeline between Luke and Acts. So if you're following it, you can then beautifully study the life of Christ by reading Luke and then come up to Acts chapter 1 as it carries on. Some other interesting facts for those of you that would like to have a little bit more. Let me give you this then you will find that Luke refers to the apostles only six times in his book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, and then you'll find him refer to apostles 30 times in the book of Acts. That is because we're now transitioning into these apostles are now unleashed into the world to plant churches, and they're referred to many, many times. Now, for those of you that are so new to this, if you'll give me a moment, let me speak to those. Um, The word apostle, if I could bring it down to something very simple, it comes from a Greek word which is apostolos. An apostolos really means nothing more than a messenger, a representative, or perhaps even an ambassador. Now, if you want it more defined, it would mean one sent on a mission to represent another with the proper credentials. So, an apostle is someone who's sent on a mission to represent another with the proper credentials. That's why the word apostle is so close to the word ambassador. The ambassadors are sent on a mission to another country representing our president, our government, you and me, and they have to have the proper credentials in which to do that. And so that's an ambassador. Now, there is some question because some people say, are there apostles today? Because you can go to some churches and they call them apostle this and apostle that. Some are called apostolic churches. I believe scripture is quite clear that the apostles of the New Testament days are much different than whatever apostles might be here today, and I don't believe that the Lord will sanction the same kind of apostles today as he did in the Bible. Now, I'm going to use some terms that are a little bit more technical for you. I don't know if I can give them as biblical terms, but I can give them to you explaining you have what are known as foundational apostles. That's why I gave the verses to start with, that the church was built upon the foundation of Christ, but they're foundational because God used the apostles to launch the church, and then from that prophets and all the rest. So we'll call them foundational apostles. Those of you that are taking notes, the foundational apostles would be 12 of them. All right, you've already heard of the 12 apostles. Then you have another group, which we'll refer to as general apostles apostles. They are not the same as the foundational apostles, and the reason they're not the same as the foundational apostles is because they do not fit all the qualifications of the foundational apostles, which, if I have time, I'll go over those because they're important. Let's go back over the 12 apostles. There's 12 of them. If you did a study through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to find that when they're listed of the 12, they're found in groups of three, four Four and four. Now, you'll need to pay attention because this gets quite fascinating. Four, four, and four. The lists of those groups are always in the same order. It's this four, and then the next four, and then the final four. They're always given in that order. When you look at the names given in, those or in that order, you're going to find that it seems like the top group are the ones most mentioned in Scripture as well as the ones that have the most intimacy with Christ the second group would have a little bit less or not as much mention and do not have quite the connectivity to Christ as the first group. The last group, there's very little. The other interesting fact, out of 12 apostles, the very first one, that group has four. They are Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Now that's why you would say, oh yeah, I know those names, but you probably don't know the name Bartholomew very well, do you? So you have Peter, James, John, and Andrew. The other interesting thing is, watch this, Peter is always named first in his group. Philip is always named first in the second group. And the last one that's named, if I have my notes here correctly, is James, the son of Alphaeus, is always named first in the third group. Are you still tracking with me? The names in the group may change, but one group won't change for the next group to the next group. In the first group, you have Matthew, and then you have his brother Andrew. You have James and his brother John. That's in the first group. The other interesting thing, out of all these names, you'll always find Peter mentioned not only first in his group, and that group mentioned first, that means Peter is always mentioned first. I'll make a case for that in a moment. And the last name that's used in all the lists is always Judas Iscariot, and we know why. He's the rummy. The only list he's not mentioned in last is the list that we've already studied in Acts because he committed suicide and he's off the scene, and there's only 11, and we've got to solve that problem hopefully today. So we have that going for us. Now going back to Peter, when we look at that, you're going to find that Peter often is the very first one to speak. That's why they would call him the spokesman maybe for the apostles. At the same time, Jesus did not show as much favoritism, but they were all equal. But there was a first among equal, that would be Peter. If there was ever any other apostle that seemed to be the closest to the Lord, it would be the one we've studied for almost a year. That would be in the Gospel of John, which would be John. He leaned on Jesus' bosom. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, so he was very special. All right? So you have that list. So when you have that in mind, you understand that there is a captivated list of 12 of these, and they're very important. Now, the big question is, is what's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? Well, simply, all apostles were disciples, but not all disciples were apostles. Now, how do we get that? Well, there's two ways. One way we get it by the very definition from the Greek word from apostle to disciple. And yet, at the same time, if you look in context, you'll also see how they acted. And then out of the disciple group, there were 12 picked, which were apostles. However, there are times when Jesus will refer to his apostles as disciples. So that's why you need to know what the word disciple means. Anybody remember what the word apostle means? It means one sent to represent another with the proper credential on a mission. It means messenger, ambassador, representative. Disciple means something else. It comes from the Greek word meteteo, which means learner, pupil, or student. So there are many that would follow Christ. Some would be learning But we've already learned studying John that there were some disciples that left him and walked away. Then there were some that kind of followed him. And then out of those that did follow him, Jesus then selected to be part of the 12, which now brings us to the early part of our study for today. So that's the background. And let's give you a little bit more before we get into our time today and our main passage of scripture. So here's the question. How are the Foundational apostles selected. How did he do it? I didn't get into the qualifications yet, but how did he pick them out? Did he go eeny, meeny, miny, mo, count off by 12s? He didn't do that, all right? How did he do that? I believe if I went through scripture, these are the four ways that he did it. First of all, they had to be a believer in Christ. Obviously, an authentic person that's going to follow Christ and be sent out with a mission, they have to be vitally connected to Christ. So they were a believer. And we know that according to John chapter 1, verse 35 through 51. So they were a believer in Christ. Secondly, Jesus called them out of his group to oftentimes leave their profession. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they totally walked away from their profession because we know at times Peter also went back to fishing. But the primary cause was you're to primarily follow me, leaving what you're doing, so your primary base of influence is going to be spending time with me. So you are now to leave your profession and follow me. You'll find that in Luke chapter 5, verse 6 through 11 and other passages. So he called them to follow him, but that does not mean he called them yet as an apostle. Now he goes to number three. Now we go to number three where he now looks at these guys and he chooses them. And so that's the important word. That is an operative word there. Jesus now sovereignly looks over the crowd, and he has the right to pick who he wants on his ministry team. And he picked these. Now, I would like you to look at this passage, so turn to Matthew chapter 9, because this is going to build our case when we get into Acts chapter 1, as well as to lay the foundation for you and me when we start picking mates, business partners, staff in our ministries, or jobs, Major decisions that require personnel. So, we're going to see how this all happens. So, turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. And it's first based upon a need. If you look here, you're going to see how it says it. Matthew chapter 9, and follow along very carefully. Verse 35, it says, Jesus is going through all the cities and villages and teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Let's pause for a moment. That means he went everywhere in these small areas and he saw a lot of people. He really knew what was going out there. He would say, on a a physical point of view, he had his hand on the pulse. Spiritually, he already knew it because he was God. But go to verse 37 then, or verse 36. So seeing the people, and it's not just glancing at the people, it is studying the people. I think what he was doing was demonstrating, looking at the people, where they are, their hurts, hang-ups, and habits. Let's go a bit further. He then felt compassion for them. Compassion means to suffer with. Passion means suffer. Come means with. He emotionally suffered with them. Why? For because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So then he said to his disciples, The harvest is truly plenteous, but the workers are few. Notice the metaphors. Sheep without a shepherd, harvest without workers. So you could almost draw a line that shepherds should be workers and sheep are very much like a harvest. But now here's the operative phrase. It's verse 38. That verse says, therefore, here's what you're to do. You are to beseech the Lord. That doesn't mean to throw up a quick little prayer. It's not a obligatory thing because you know you're supposed to ask God for help when you have needs. It's a beseeching of the Lord. It's a petitioning of the Lord. If I take that back to Acts, it was a continual crying out unto God. Then it says, you petition the Lord of the harvest, because he is in charge of all of this anyway, to send out workers. Some translations will say it's not just that he kind of calls them out, it's for God then to thrust out workers into the field to do the work, and then finally into his harvest. Now if you'll notice, that's what he did. Now later on in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1, it says Jesus summoned the 12 disciples after he did all of that, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits to cast them out, so he's now calling them. Here's the big question. What in the world happened between verse 38 of chapter 9 in chapter 10, verse 1, what happened? You may leave Matthew now, and if you will, go to Luke. Because I want you to see what happened, because this is the most dramatic part of it to show us what he did to begin the process of choosing. First thing he did, he had to be believers. Secondly, he called them to follow him. After that, he is now choosing. But what did he do? Based on the need, there is need, there's a lot of people that need to be reached. How are we going to do this? Now, this is, this is what I believe. I believe that what was happening in Matthew was there was a veiled statement of what's going to happen to reach these people. Listen carefully. How can you reach these people? You need more people. How are we going to get more people? We've got to have more people that know how to reach those people to do that. How are we going to get more people to know how to do that? We've got to establish apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Now he's not ready to tell them that but he's laying the foundation out. At the same time he says in order for you to have all of this we need to have a church, an army, a family to be able to reach this world of all those that are distressed out there. And to be able to do that these leaders to equip the church to do that have to be properly qualified. How do you pick those guys? And here it is in Luke and you're going to see. All right, Luke chapter 6, now look in verse 12. It says it was at this time I believe, during those times that we just read about, that he went off to the mountain to pray, underline the word prayer. He spent the whole night in prayer to God the Father. Now, we don't know all that he talked about, but I'm going to assume as a result of him having that time with God that it was about what happens in verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Now, that's an interesting phrase. He called his disciples a greater crowd, and he chose 12 of them, the greater crowd. So out of the crowd, he picked 12, whom he also named as apostles, ambassadors, representatives, messengers. So he called 12. Now, you could read through the list. I'm not going to take the time to be able to do that. So it's based on prayer, and it's after he's emphasized a great deal of personal prayer before he did it. So let me just come up for air so you can kind of grab a hold of this. I know that sometimes in ministry we're always trying to get more people to work for us and to get more people involved, and that's not really wrong. I went to a large mega church in Southern California, and they had workshops, and one of the workshops was, how do you get volunteers? And I took some notes and put together my own stuff, and I've been on the road speaking, and one of my little workshop topics is, how do you get more volunteers? And there's a lot of ways to do that, a lot of good strategy that's practical, and we should use all of that. But sometimes we lean so heavily upon the strategy and the mechanism of getting people to come on board with us that we actually trump out prayer and the importance of prayer. Now, once I've done how to get volunteers, I then had to put together another workshop. This is true, serious as a heart attack. And that is how do you resolve conflicts in your ministry? And I realize now the reason we have conflicts often is because we have the wrong people in office, the wrong people in leadership, the wrong people in places of influence, because we've done maybe some man thoughts, man, not men like male, but people way to do stuff, to get them into this office. And what we've done is we have eliminated or minimized the importance of prayer for those people. And so we're now on the other end trying to solve our problems by going to so many seminars and learning this, learning this, learning this, learning this. And what we really need to do is to go back and pray. And so I'm rebuking myself, really, not you all, because everything rises and falls on leadership. And if I'm one of the leaders and kind of looking for me as a point person to some degree, although I've got accountability teams, but we got to pray. When you enter into a relationship with someone, you need to pray. When you want to put on a new missionary, you need to pray. In your business, you need to ask God, who is going to be our hire. I have a form that I hand out to a lot of guys that are out there hiring. It's called 62 Questions to Ask a New Hire as an interview process. I'd say, you don't need to ask those questions until you pray. Now, I will give you this. I'm not God. I'm not Jesus Christ. So I don't have the mind, and the Lord, he knows, and he can pick them out. In a few moments, you're going to see what another part of this is as well. Let's go to number four. He picked him out after much prayer. Then what did he do? He sent them out, and they had a responsibility. And I wanted you to write this down. He sent them out. as you're marking up your notes here a little bit, I'd like you to track with me just a little bit because I want to show you how the, the timeline of working with them happened. All right? He's doing his job. Certain ones are intrigued by Christ. They come to Christ. Others are coming to Christ. He's calling them to him. Through the calling, they're believing in Him. While the believing in Him is going on, they're now starting to follow Him more faithfully. He now tells them to keep on follow, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say that to, to be an apostle. He just said, "Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men."